Hi, I'm a higher ed CMO, and I have a confession to make. I can't really fathom staying in the same position for 30 plus years. And at this point in my career and at my age, it's pretty much impossible for me to, unless something just goes really dark and we have to work until we're in our late 70s and early 80s, which I guess I shouldn't rule out. But that said, I actually really admire people who have been able to carve out a career that has allowed them for professional growth and development and advancement. And so I'm really excited to have a conversation today with someone who's a fixture in higher ed marketing. He has worked in this field for over 30 years and is just someone that I have admired for a really long time. And he has retired this year, so he gets to reflect back on what that career looked like. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Andrew Cariega. Welcome to Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO, a podcast that empowers higher ed marketers to bring innovation, creativity, and excellence to their work. I'm your host, Jamie Hunt. Join me every two weeks for discussions with some of the best minds in higher education marketing. Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO is part of the Nullify Network, a robust collection of podcasts designed to help higher educational professionals like you grow. Explore our other shows at enrollify.org or check out some of my personal favorites linked in the show notes below. Enrollify is made possible by Element 451, the leading AI-powered all-in-one student engagement platform, helping institutions create meaningful, personalized, and engaging interactions with students. Learn more at element451.com. I'm really thrilled to be here with Andrew Cariega, who is somebody I have followed on Twitter probably as long as I've been on Twitter. Um, And he is the retired chief marketing officer at Missouri University of Science and Technology, a position he held for nearly 33 years. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jamie. I'm delighted to be here. It's uh, great. I appreciate the opportunity to join you today. I'm so excited to talk with you because First of all, I've been following you for probably over a decade, but beyond that, just I feel like your career, spending 33 years at one institution is something that doesn't happen anymore. I, I feel like I never talk to people that have done that, and it's, I think, going to be really interesting to have a conversation about what, how things shifted and evolved during your time there. Sure. It's rare to find somebody at the same institution for that um, amount of time. Now, just a point of clarification, when I joined, I did not join as the CMO, so um, it was um, a little over a decade that I was actually the CMO, so I worked my way up through the ranks, if you will, from when I started as a writer. I think that's kind of interesting, though. Like, I think that's inspiring for people who are maybe um, not in a senior leadership position right now, but to see you know, a trajectory that can take them to that, um, no matter where they're starting, but why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about your journey at Missouri University of Science and Technology? Well, my journey begins actually before joining Missouri S&T. I uh, was a former newspaper journalist, and I uh, became a uh, communications and marketing manager for a nonprofit in the Rolla area, which is where Missouri s and is located. I 
I was essentially a one-person shop for this Council of Local Governments that worked with six counties and 23 towns and villages in south-central Missouri. Um, an opportunity arose at the University of Missouri Rolla, which was the name of this university at the time, for a public relations writer focused on science and tech, and that was something I was really interested in. So I applied for and was fortunate to get hired in that position. Loved it, loved the writing, loved the interviewing, talking to the engineers, scientists, other profs, the researchers that were doing great work. A year later, I became the manager of an office then known as News Services, later known as Public Relations. Mm. And from there, the organization really evolved from that point. We had the News Services office and the Publications office. We didn't have a marketing or marketing and communications office at that time. So eventually we evolved. Um, the web came along. We added video and other you know, aspects. And of course, as branding and marketing matured, so did we always a little bit lagging behind where things were going in the industry, but doing our best to play catch up. I've worked in higher ed for 20 years. And when I first started, you couldn't really use the term brand. You couldn't really use the term marketing, like faculty would get riled up about it. Right, right. The M word. Yeah, exactly. And that was that was definitely the case um, 33 years ago. And we didn't talk about branding or marketing, really. I, I didn't know that much about marketing. In fact, I took one took one marketing course in college and I really didn't enjoy it. So <laughs> it's a little bit interesting. It's interesting to see where I ended up. But the uh, whole idea, you know, it was a little bit dirty to think about, you know, sullying our reputation right. by talking about marketing. So that was really uh, an interesting thing. But we did talk about reputation. And one of the things that I learned along the way was when you were talking to faculty about the reputation of an institution or their own reputation, they were all ears. Mm. And and that's something I think that helped to segue into having more discussions about marketing and branding. And of course, now both of those terms are almost ubiquitous and probably not used uh, properly by a lot of folks in higher ed. Probably not. Well, I, th- I think about um, at my institution, the strategic plan the second goal is all about marketing and branding. And it mm. just kind of blows my mind because of the level of pushback at the second institution I worked for from faculty around the notion of marketing and branding. And now it's it's literally goal number two. Like it it's like academic excellence, marketing and branding. And yeah. and it's just and when I talk to faculty, they're like, Yeah, we need to do a better job telling our story. And they're saying like all the things that we've we're saying for a long time. <laughs> did you did you notice like a gradual shift in in the respect for marketing and branding, or was it like one day they got it? No, it was it was definitely a gradual shift. It took a while, and again, um, there was always talk about it, or not always, but you know, even going into back into the nineties, one of the chancellors that I worked for at the time was very keen on the idea of branding. Until we started talking about money and, <laughs> you know, that it costs, you know, you've got to invest in these yeah. things. And it took another probably decade before we were really serious about how we were going to position ourselves as an institution. 
and that also happened to coincide with a name change, mm. which I can talk I can talk about a little bit later. But that was an opportunity to really um, talk about branding in in terms of who we were, who our identity, or what our identity is, and how we should move forward with this new identity, so that we would not lose any momentum with our um, student recruitment goals and our fundraising goals and visibility goals, et cetera. So you, you said you started out your career in a writing position and you ended your career as the top guy. Um, were there moments during that journey where you made uh, personal investments in your professional development or how did you build up the expertise to be able to keep advancing in the organization? Because I know I talked to some people um, where they've sat in the same role for 10, 15, 20 years. How did you sort of move up the org chart during your career? Well, I, I did take advantage of opportunities to learn, and some of that was um, educating myself through books, through conferences, etc. One of the first opportunities that I had, actually, the year that I became um, a manager, one year after I started, was I had the opportunity to go to one of the the Case Summer Institutes, mm. which was focused on communications. I think it was just communications then, no marketing. But that really helped me to better grasp and understand the role of, of uh, being a manager, which was something I had no experience with when I was booted up into management. Mm. So not only learning about uh, the intricacies of marketing and branding, but also learning what it means to lead people, what it means to manage an organization, manage a budget, etc. And so I, I thought, first of all, I need to really learn more about managing in communications. And then I've been involved in other organizations. I was very involved in CASE at the district level and at the international level. I was on the eventually on the board of trustees for CASE a few years back. And then I also was involved with um, AMA, mm. um, went to several conferences. I, I was involved, I say, as a participant, not as a leader in the organization, but was fortunate to work with several folks who were leaders in AMA, and some of them were people that I were able, was able to connect with during our name change from Simpson Scarborough, like uh, Elizabeth Scarborough Johnson, for example, mm. and and uh, and Jason Simon. So, so that gave me some opportunities to really learn um, through attending conferences, and also just taking advantage of every opportunity that I had to read as much as I could devour as much information as I could about marketing and branding. And so it was not a super formal approach to training, but I think it was effective. Well, I, I mean, yeah, you definitely have had a, a very successful career and to rise, you know, through the ranks is definitely, I think, speaks to the initiative that you put into that. And I think about... Um, for, for me, it was like this moment of, I'm going to say yes to every opportunity this year, mm. you know, like, yeah. It, oh, you're asking if I'll volunteer to judge case entries. Yes. You're asking if I'll, there's no glory with that, right? Like that's not something you get, you get, you know, public accolades for, but you get to right. meet people, you get to network, you get to learn from all the different entries you're reviewing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's so valuable. Right. 
Yeah, I was. I, I'm a big believer in getting involved in in case and other organizations whenever you can. And as you say, to say yes to these opportunities, and uh, within reason, of course, you want to right. be able to manage your work life balance or work life integration. But but yeah, certainly there are many opportunities to get involved, and I've encouraged that with with members of our team over the years as well. Hey all, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO. I want to take a moment to thank my friends at MindPower who are making season two of this Enrollify podcast possible. MindPower is a full-service marketing and branding firm celebrating nearly 30 years of needle-moving, thought-provoking, research-fueled creative and strategy. MindPower is woman-founded and owned, WBENC certified, nationally recognized, and serves the social sector, higher education, healthcare, nonprofits, and more. The MindPower team is made up of strategists, storytellers, and experienced creators. From market research to brand campaigns to recruitment to fundraising, the agency exists to empower clients, amplify brands, and help institutions find a strategic way forward. You can learn more about their work in the world by heading on over to MindPower, Inc. That's M-I-N-D-P-O-W-E-R-I-N-C dot com. And be sure to tell the crew that Jamie sent you their way. It can be so easy to just get bogged down in the day-to-day and not really think about investing in yourself, I guess. You know, you just do the tasks that are in front of you. Are there any moments during your career that were just pivotal where you were like, this is, when I look back on this, this was a moment that meant something, that, that changed the trajectory of something, either for you or the university? Oh, yeah. There were a few, in fact. And I've been very fortunate to uh, have been, I guess, in the right place at the right time. Probably the most pivotal moment for the university and for myself was when we undertook the process of changing our name uh, from the University of Missouri Rolla to Missouri University of Science and Technology. It was a pretty dramatic name change. You know, you see a lot of schools that go from college to university mm-hmm. or, or drop a directional, you know, modifier from their name. So, but this was really a radical shift from the name we had to the name that we now have. And it began in 2006, in the fall of 2006, when our chancellor at the time, Jack Carney, was leading this through uh, the direction of our board of trustees, which is an advisory board, not a governing board. Uh, since we are part of the University of Missouri system, we're governed by the board of curators. However, this process began in the fall of 2006, and it was a very methodical approach. And I learned so much from Jack Carney on how he made the case for the name change. What it really boiled down to was when we changed our name from the University of Missouri Rolla to Missouri S&T, the idea and the way that Jack Carney really presented this very methodically to different constituent groups was talking about, does the name University of Missouri Rolla or UMR really convey the intrinsic nature of our university, which mm. is a very STEM dominant, um, you know, about 85% of our students today are in a STEM major of some sort. Very much an outlier, even when you look at the major um, STEM institutions like MIT, Caltech, Georgia Tech, Rensselaer, etc. We are even more dominant in terms of 
the engineering mm. side of things. So making that case to our alumni, to our current students at the time, to the community, who was also very invested because obviously the name Rala was in our university name, um, to our employers. And it was really a, a methodical approach to, to making the case for the name. And we started out by saying, should we change the name? Is that a good idea? We didn't have a name in mind at the time. Then we enlisted the help of Simpson Scarborough to do some, some very good market research with, with potential names. And that was helpful to have a third party working on our behalf to look at different name names that we could change to. And Missouri S&T, or Missouri University of Science and Technology, was the one that resonated the most with prospective students. So that's how we move forward. Then the, the work began in 2007 to prepare for a launch in January 1st, 2008. So it's been 16 years now since that launch. Wow. Yeah. How did yeah. that go? Uh, you know, it, it was uh, uneven. You know, we, we had a challenge with communicating to different constituents. You have to remember at the time, Facebook was only available to college students. Oh, right. So there was really no social media to speak of. We, we created a blog, a name change blog. We pushed the information out to our alumni and, of course, faculty, staff in the community. And I essentially was the, the blogger-in-chief for that, for that blog and handling, moderating a lot of the comments and questions. But it gave people a place to come, sort of a, a clearinghouse where they could get their questions answered, where they could vent, kvetch, <laughs> and, and hopefully read and see the, the case for change. But it was a process. It took, uh, again... You know, the process, I think, was was rushed because the Board of Carriers approved it in April of 2007, and we had a January 1st, 2008 wow. uh, date to switch it over. Yeah, but we, we made it happen. Uh, it wasn't a perfect rollout because of the timing, and there are a lot of things that you just don't really consider when you're doing something like this, like, you know, the voicemails, right. you know, change, changing everyone's voicemail, for example. I've never been at an institution that's done a name change while I've been there. I, I've been at an institution that dropped an apostrophe. Um, so it was University of Wisconsin Oshkosh that previously had University of Wisconsin hyphen Oshkosh, but that didn't mm -hmm. cause alumni to, you know, panic or anything. But I have had alumni completely lose their minds over a change in Pantone color. So I can't right. imagine a name change. Well, and then on top of that was the, the logo, right? Changing yeah. the logo, yeah. which was a big, um, you know, another big challenge for us, but also a great opportunity to see how we could, um, you know, again, position ourselves in a, in a way that would, again, convey the intrinsic nature of the institution. So... It was, it was a, there was a lot of pushback. There were a lot of conversations. There was a lot of email exchanged. Um, we did a survey with alumni. You know, we did an entire issue of the alumni magazine devoted to 
the question, should we change our name, and then making the case for why we should. So we kind of touched a little bit on how higher ed has evolved, but what do you think are some of the most significant changes in that sort of shaped how you approached marketing during your time? Well, uh, obviously the rise of, of digital, all things digital, made a huge, uh, tremendous impact in how we approach our marketing. And that again, you know, when you consider when I started in the 90s, there was no internet. Right. Uh, right. So it was also interesting to think about how we communicated, you know, we would fax news releases if if it was something that we thought was, you know, urgent. And otherwise we would put them in the mail. So it's interesting to think of that these days, right? Yeah. I had a uh, whole intern that whole job was stuffing envelopes to mail press releases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good old days. So yeah. there, uh, you know. So with the the advent of digital, of course, that that changed everything. Um, I was the first co webmaster for our university. Wow. So in terms of changes, um, you know how how um, higher ed marketing has evolved. I think, um, you know, first of all, as we were talking about earlier, the idea of marketing being a being considered legitimate by the faculty and by the administration has been important. First of all, you know, it became something that people realized was important. And part of that, I think, has been exacerbated by talks of the demographic cliff, Mm -hmm. um, you know, concerns that we've been looking at. Uh, One of the arguments we made during the name change was, again, the, um, the change in population in Missouri and how we really had to to have a name that would, again, convey to the types of students who might be interested in our university, um, you know, what kind of university we are outside of Missouri, because we were well-known in Missouri, but not so well-known beyond Missouri. So that, you know, the name change sort of was the convergence of other forces that, that helped us, I think, better elevate the importance of marketing in our internal community. You know, the rise of digital has been, you know, huge for us. As I was mentioning, uh, there was no internet when I started and I was mm-hmm. the first co-webmaster. I and somebody from IT had, uh, were co-webmasters and we didn't know really what we were doing. We just <laughs> knew we did, had to, so. we, we had to create a website. So I learned HTML and, um, you know, we sort of fumbled around and figured that out. Um, there was really no marketing office or team. As I mentioned, it was a public relations unit. We did writing for the alumni magazine. We did news releases. We pitched experts to media. And we helped admissions put together a view book. And that was about it. Um, so it's much more integrated today, of course, than, than it was then. One of the other things I just wanted to mention, beyond the name change, which was certainly a pivotal moment, another one that I think is was very... Very few people have probably had the opportunity to to be involved in was a significant gift from a an alum, uh, Fred Kummer, who was the founder of a a design build firm in St. Louis and was one of the largest firms for hospitals and other medical and healthcare buildings. He and his wife June um, donated three hundred million to us in twenty twenty. Holy cow! Yeah, 
that was huge. And this was something, of course, that Fred and June had been cultivated for many years, and unfortunately both have passed now. But they made this, this gift that was certainly transformational. Wow. And just, just seeing what's happened with that, the investments into new scholarships for students. There's a Cummer Vanguard Scholars Program, for example. There's um, full-ride fellowships for PhD students who are innovation-minded or entrepreneurial-minded. Um, just We were able to establish a new college focused on innovation and entrepreneurship. Wow. And, and so these things are, you know, it's three years down the road now. And we're starting to see the fruit from that gift. But it was a tremendous, um, again, you know, we, we throw the word transformational around a lot in higher ed, right? But this, I think, was truly transformational, at least for our university. That's a bonkers amount of money. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at, at the Wikipedia page where it says that the endowment is uh, 648 million. So that's more than half of the endowment that they gave to the institution. Exactly. That's right. amazing. Right. That's incredibly generous. And honestly, what people should be doing with their money when they, when they, I, look, I could go on a whole rant about billionaires. <laughs> I read when I was researching you a little bit that you are really interested in technology and communications. And you mentioned like being a co-webmaster and, and all of that. How did you get interested in that and what drove you in that area? Well, that's interesting because as the internet was coming of age and I was working in public relations primarily, and then, you know, more into branding and marketing, I thought about, you know, just the impact of, of the internet on communication specifically. And then the whole idea of disintermediation is something that's always fascinated me. I know that's a horrible word, you know, disintermediation, but essentially, um, you know, removing the middleman, if you will, from our communications and how the internet has really revolutionized that. You know, even mm -hmm. when you go back to, you know, in the 90s, people were using travel agents, you know, before there was Travelocity or Booking.com, um, other, you know, organizations where you can do your own booking now. And that was one of the first industries to become disrupted by the internet. And of course, everything else has too. Now, we, you know, with, with the, the rise of Uber, for example, has yeah. changed the way people, you know, get uh, get from the airport to their hotel, et cetera. Yeah. And, and then, you know, thinking about how every organization is now really a publisher or a, a media organization, if you will, and how can the university really take advantage of that? And again, this was also sort of born out of my frustration as a PR person, right? Trying to pitch stories to media um, from this this small university in a town of 20,000 in rural Missouri, trying to get national media attention, right? Yeah. It's not easy. <clears throat> but, also, but, you know, there are ways that we can communicate with our key constituents that don't rely on traditional mainstream media. And so yeah. we were looking at that, and, and that influenced a lot. I think, um, you know, we sort of take it for granted nowadays that, that everyone is a, a media organization. But right. at the time, at the time, it really was, was something new and something that we were all 
trying to figure out. I think we're still trying to figure out, honestly. There's so many opportunities that we have now to engage directly with alumni, with current students, with prospective students, with the public, with different interest groups, with our legislators that uh, didn't exist in the 90s. So, you know, again, this is a, a tremendous opportunity. And so this, that's really where I saw the, the intersection with technology and communications. Hey, it's Jamie Hunt, and I want to personally invite you to the industry's hottest event this summer, the Engage Summit, hosted in Raleigh on June 25th and 26th. The Engage Summit is your roadmap for AI readiness in higher education. Sessions will focus on cutting-edge AI applications that are reshaping student outreach, enhancing staff productivity, and offering deep insights into ROI. This isn't your typical conference. It's a strategic summit where you'll learn from the best about leveraging AI and digital strategies in higher ed marketing. Imagine two days filled with hands-on sessions, real success stories, and the chance to network with top minds in the field. You'll leave with practical, transformative takeaways as you learn how AI fosters a more personalized, efficient approach from recruitment to student success. Oh, and the best part? The Engage Summit is incredibly affordable. Use the discount code Enrollify50 and you can register for just $99. So join your favorite Enrollify network creators at the Engage Summit this June. Learn more and register at engage.element451.com. We can't wait to see you there. We are very nearly approaching, what, 20, 20 years of social media. And I feel like at this point, we kind of take it for granted that we can have two-way conversations and that we can listen, like we can do social listening. We can kind of see what's yes. being said, get the temperature of our audiences. And you're right back. I started my career in the late 90s as a journalist also. And it was just the people who made the effort of writing a letter to the editor and putting in an envelope <laughs> and putting a stamp on it because we didn't have email at the first newspaper I worked for or finding a fax machine at the local coffee shop and faxing us a letter. Right. Otherwise you right. weren't hearing from people. Yeah. <clears throat> and you probably had the same five or six people writing, you know, regularly writing letters to the yes. editor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I think my, um, my newspaper, I had like this one guy that just wrote in response to my op-eds just constantly. It was just the same guy. Yeah. Yeah, and that was true also, I think, even with, yeah, it, and true also with our alumni magazine, right? So yeah. um, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to interact or engage unless you wrote a letter and then it might, it might be published in an issue or two issues down the road. So yeah. there was that time lag as well. Yeah, digital has changed everything so much in our uh, in marketing and communications. I remember I was the, my first university job, I, one of my functions was the, uh, being the editor of the alumni magazine. And I remember the alumni news section was just chubby, right? It was so much mm -hmm. because that was basically the way that you had to tell people what you're up to. And it felt right. like once Facebook and LinkedIn became, you know, really ubiquitous, people stopped submitting their class notes to the alumni yes. magazine and the sanctions just shrunk, 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 shrunk. Right. No, and that's true. And I remember when, um, again, when, when some alum, when alumni first started getting email, they would start, they would submit their, 
class notes like, I'm on the internet now. Here's my email address, you know. <laughs> right. Hope to hope to hear from classmates. So it's kind of quaint when you think about it nowadays. But. You're giving me a lot of nostalgia. Like a lot of like, <laughs> oh, what, that was a simpler time. <laughs> in some ways it was, but in other ways you wonder how we got anything done. Right? I mean, the the my first job, like I said, we didn't have email and we didn't have internet access. Like how? What did yeah. we do? I don't, I don't remember what we did. <laughs> when you think about how, what percentage of our days are spent on email or on the internet in our jobs, what right, did we do right. before that? It, yeah. Well, in the on the public relations side, when I, when I was first starting, I, you know, I make a lot of phone calls, right? Calling yes. reporters or trying to call reporters and being on the phone a lot, um, you know, with pitches and. Gosh, I don't think we do much of that anymore at all. Occasionally, some phone calls, but most of the pitches are by email. Yeah. Even, you know, when you're doing media relations, so. Well, our, our local paper, I know my AVP of PR and I were trying to reach a specific reporter, and she didn't have a phone number. Um, the, the, her directory mm. listing was an email address only, her signature only email address. Um, there was no way to reach her by phone. It that kind is of blew interesting. My mind. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I want to pivot a little bit. So when you started your career, like probably most of us who are sitting in a in a VP or AVP role, um, you started out as an individual contributor who you know didn't necessarily have direct reports. Um, how did you evolve um, some guiding principles or philosophies about leadership over that time, and what did you find to be most effective? That's a great question, um, right? I think the um, the first thing I mentioned the case, the week long case institute that I was able to attend um, the first year that I became a manager. That was very helpful. I learned a lot uh, in that one week, just in terms of of understanding, um, you know, different personality styles. You know, we we went through that. That was my first. Um, encounter with the Myers-Briggs type indicator, for example. I know that's been a little bit, um, you know, debunked now, and there are other other personality profile tests, but, um, you know, at least that gave me a little bit of a sense of, oh, people see things differently than I do. That's interesting. Yeah. Maybe I should think about how how to work with people, and I started thinking about, it was almost like you start pigeonholing people, like, oh, that person's, a, you know, an INTP or whatever. And so you start trying to do some shirt sleeve psychoanalysis of how can I motivate this person? So probably not the greatest uh, way to manage, but I learned a little bit um, in that from that beyond that um, I learned during that session uh, about some of the, um, you know, some management books um, and some leadership books. I read some of the classics like, you know, Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and um, Peter Drucker and sort of tried to learn on my own. But the thing that um, really stuck with me in that that Case Institute was one of the faculty there said in this leadership session, most of you here were competent performers in your job and you were moved into management. You had no experience at all. In management, so you're not alone because that's 
that's typical in higher education. And it's typical on the academic side as well as the administrative side. So you need to, to work, find opportunities to learn as well. I was also fortunate to be part of a University of Missouri administrative leadership development program mm. that um, happened in the early 2000s. By then, and that was that was helpful, but by then I had sort of been fumbling my way around, um, you know, as a manager for a decade. And, you know, I was thinking, wow, it would have really been nice to know this stuff, <laughs> you know, 10 years ago, but, yeah. you know, I'll try to make up for the lost time and, and figure it out. So, so a lot of it is just by my own, um, you know, my own interest in leadership, reading about leadership and, um, you know, trying to, to learn from others as well. And then taking advantage of these, these leadership opportunities, the, um, the administrative leadership development program through the university of Missouri system was very beneficial. That was a year long program. I think those are fabulous. I think to your point, um, many of the directors that I currently have on my team, this is their first director level position. And um, the, my AVPs and I were talking today about, are, have we given them really the tools that they need to be most successful? Or are we just sort of making assumptions that they know how to lead others at a director level or how to think like a director um, and to think and not necessarily wait for taking direction. And I'm not saying that any of, of the people that report to me are are not performing or anything like that. I'm just saying, I, I'm not sure that when we hire people that we always um, prepare them for leading because um, it's different. Um, oh, right. And right. You know, when you're, when you're uh, hired in as a performer, you know, you know what, what, what's required of you and um, you can be, enterprising and innovative and get the job done and do great work, but you're not trying to get work done through others. Right. And that's, that's the trick of leadership is how do you move from doing all the work yourself because it's impossible um, and getting uh, the work done through others. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, influencing. It's a very different mindset. Absolutely. So I want to ask you to be generous enough to give Two sets of advice. I'd love to hear you give advice for someone who's just starting their career in higher education marketing. And then I'd love to hear what you have to say to somebody like me who probably has, you know, 18 more years in their career um, about kind of being in it for the long haul. Hang in there, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to win the lottery and, and go to a beach sometimes. But. <laughs> Hey, you're close to a beach, but I, I don't am. know about the lottery thing. So, <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> no, but um, the years go by quickly, believe yeah. it or not. Uh, but, but to your first question, for um, someone who's just starting their career in higher ed and higher ed marketing, um, you know, I think I think you hit on one of the one of the points earlier, and that is, you know, be available and be willing to take on new challenges and new assignments you know, or volunteer, um, whether that's in your organization, you know, um, or in a professional organization such as CASE or AMA. Um, I think it's important to also just have an innate curiosity. And I don't know really how to explain that, but people, I've found that people who are just curious about why things are the way they are or why they work 
this way or why why we don't do it that way are often very good performers. You know, if you're curious, you're also questioning things. And it's not bad to question at all and to think about how could this be improved or done differently. And I think that's been, um, my experience has been the folks who have been the best performers in our area have been also those who are driven by curiosity. Mm-hmm. One thing that I did not, that was not very strong, it was not a strong suit of mine when I started, was being data-driven. Mm. I think that's important, and I've learned that sort of along the, along the way. Of course, when you work with a bunch of engineers and scientists, you better be able to bring the data. So right. I learned that as I was going through that it's important for people in marketing to understand that uh, data drives a lot of decisions or should drive a lot of decisions. Mm-hmm. And you can always strengthen your, your arguments with good data. So, you know, being data-driven is going to be, I think, a good tool to have in the toolkit. I'll just say it this way. It isn't cute to say, oh, I'm not good at math or, right. you know what I mean? So yeah. it's, if you don't have to just say, I'm just a marketer. I don't know math. No, no. Uh-huh. Marketers need to be data driven. Yeah. You need to understand. You don't necessarily have to be, you know, calculus whiz, but you need to um, think about, you know, how data can drive decisions. And especially when you're making arguments or making a case for investments, to be able to show through data how previous investments have paid off. What's the ROI of them? Maybe this goes without saying, but I think being a strong communicator is uh, something any uh, anyone starting a new career in higher ed marketing should be able to to communicate both written and orally, um, be able to get to your point, make your case, and do that succinctly. Uh, so, again, I think this is my bias as a former journalist coming out, but get to the point, make your case quickly, because people don't have a lot of time. If you're going to be effective, you need to be able to quickly tell people what you need to tell them and why they need to know. Again, don't be afraid to take on new challenges um, or new assignments, and I find that as a result, when, you, when you're willing to, to be the person who will take on those assignments, You'll be the person that uh, people will remember and they'll call on you for greater responsibility and those will lead to greater rewards in your career. And um, I think it's, again, an opportunity if you're the one that uh, raises your hand and says, pick me, pick me, you'll uh, have many more opportunities than those who, who just would rather sit on the sidelines. And then finally, I'd say, Take care of yourself. Mm. Don't burn yourself out, for sure. So, you know, try to strive for that that balance that we all need. That is, that's really, really good advice. Uh, and interestingly, our last episode, we talked a little bit about burnout, too, um, and how probably by the time you're recognizing that you're burned out, you're past the point of being burned out like you're you're actually burned out it's hard to recognize it until you get there um but having that ability to check in with yourself um periodically and make intentional effort towards recognizing if you're heading that direction I think can maybe help you stave that off and 
I'm sure there were times in your career where you felt like you were heading towards burnout. And and what did you do? I mean, did you go touch grass? Did you take time <laughs> off? I mean, what did you do? No, in I think moments? I think that's very true. I, I what you just said resonates with me that um, you may be beyond the point before you really recognize um, the burnout. And so one thing we haven't really touched on, and in addition to my CMO duties, the last six years, I also served as a chief of staff role. Oh, wow. Yeah. It began with an interim chancellor after the chief of staff left, and he asked me to take it on, and I thought, okay, you know, it could be only be a year or so I can, I can handle this gig. And that also, um, then when the new chancellor came on board in 2019, um, he wanted me to stay on as the chief of staff, which I did. Um, you know, I think the challenge that I, that I found myself in, and as chief of staff, I was also the legislative liaison for our university, the, um, with lo- local legislators and federal legislators. So that was another um, little perk of the job there. So um, I found myself, and I, I told told the boss, I said, I'm not able to do both jobs well. You know, mm-hmm. I, I can't be an effective CMO and an effective chief of staff. And, of course, you know, he told me, oh, you're doing great, you're doing fine. But I knew that I wasn't because I couldn't give my all to both. Yeah. Um, Fortunately, now now that I've retired, um, we hired both the CMO, uh, Cheryl Kane, who started um, last July, so we had a six-month transition time, and we hired a chief of staff, our former director of digital marketing, Jill Tanner, who started that role in November. So now we have full-time people in those roles, and that, I think, is going to help the university tremendously moving forward. In fact, I can already see the, the benefits of that. Because so I knew that I was being stretched too thin. But, you know, we made the case when I, you know, announced that I was planning to retire a year ago that we really needed those positions to be separate. You know, they need to be closely aligned, but you can't have one person doing both of those jobs and doing them effectively. Both of those are gigantic jobs. Um, yeah. Just so my change. advice, my advice to you is don't become a chief of staff, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I kind of um, played in a role similar to that when I was at, at WSSU. And um, honestly, like my relationship with Elwood Robinson was so great. And it was a smallish institution. But it was it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. Um, and I had a really really strong team there. So that made it a a little bit easier. But if I think about doing both those things now, there's no way, there's no way. They're both just gigantic jobs. And especially when you throw in the legislative piece, like that's, that's a gig on its own, honestly. Exactly. Yeah, it is. It is. Those last few years, I could definitely feel the burnout coming and the frustration really arising more from the fact that I didn't feel like I was doing service to either role yeah it's it's hard when you don't feel like you're doing your best work that's that I find that very hard on the psyche I find that very draining when you're putting in tons and tons of hours and effort 
but you you're spread so thin that you're not doing your best work because I don't mind obviously since like my whole life is work and talking about work but I don't <laughs> I don't mind the long hours but I do mind if it's long hours that aren't um resulting in things I'm proud of so Andrew what is next for you now that you've wrapped up a very busy probably very time-consuming career do you have any you know big projects or plans on the horizon so right now I'm just trying to um to take a break from a lot of things, but uh, I'm also getting back to my my true passion, which is writing. I'm just kind of playing around with a couple of blogs right now. To um, one is a blog about writing. Nice. Yeah, and that's just my uh, andrewcariega.com website. And then another one is I don't know how how I'll do with this. I'll probably just play with this on the side. To, spew out some thoughts about rock and roll a rock and roll blog called it's only rock and roll a very original name <laughs> and and so that's what i'm doing um i'm finding more time to play a couple of my guitars that have been gathering dust and um just trying to to sort of you know express the more creative side i haven't been able to express as much and I must tell you, Jamie, I, I admire you so much for the time that you devote to your painting, to your art. And um, I don't know how you do that with everything else that you do. But uh, I do know that we all need to have something that can help keep us sane and some sort of creative outlet. But I uh, just want to tell you, I really admire that about you. Oh, I appreciate that. I, that's something that painting started as a necessity, I think. My husband and I had a photography studio and we were shooting probably two evenings a week and both weekend days. We just loved it. And then I got badly injured and I, we had to close our studio and I didn't, I lost that creative outlet completely, but I could, I could do, I could paint. Like I could at least, you know, do something creative and I was terrible at it, but it was at least exercising that same part of my brain. And I think it kept me alive going through the whole year and a half it took to diagnose what was wrong and then having surgery and recovering from surgery. And so it's just become like this place that I go to that just, it's, it just makes me, my brain just unravel. Like all the tension of my body just unravels when I do it and I'm not very good at it and I don't call myself an artist, but I, I love it. So I think it'll be one of those lifelong hobbies and um, I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. I, I try um, and many fails, <laughs> but I try. No, I think you're, I, I think you're great. So, you know, the, the main thing is that you're doing it and you're out there and uh, giving it your all. So that's that's what's fun. And I feel the same way when I pick up a guitar and, and play for 30 minutes or so. Just exercises a different part of my brain. Yeah. Um, you know, it could set that muscle memory going that um, helps as well. So I think yeah. we all need need those outlets. I think it keeps us young too. Like it's um, keeps our brains functioning in a different way. I think my husband and yeah. I play a lot of board games too because I think that helps you know, oh, keep yeah. your brain sharp and keep your memory working and all of that. I just think that's super, super important. Um, so as we, as we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts or reflections you'd like to share with listeners? Well, I, I guess I would just say that I, I never really um, expected to 
be in higher education for 33 years. Um, it just sort of happened that way. I wasn't the best student in college, um, but everything that has been positive in my life or so many of the positive things in my life I owe to higher education. I owe mm-hmm. to my, you know, my college education. I owe it to the community college where I got my start. I owe it to the university where I got my bachelor's degree in journalism. And then I owe it to this university that I've worked for so many years. Um, and higher education is a great sector. I mean, it's a great gig because, you know, we're, we're doing things that matter. We're transforming lives. And I know that's cliche, but, you know, cliches are true, right? So yeah. it is. And, and that's one of the things that I love about working in higher ed. I used to teach occasionally as an adjunct and I always enjoyed it because it reminded me why we're here. Mm. Going walking, <clears throat> walking in the classroom and um, teaching students, engaging with students reminded me this is why we're all here. So yeah. it's been it's been a great gig, and I, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And um, again, I would recommend anyone who's interested in in working in higher ed marketing. You could do a lot worse. I think it's a great opportunity. I love it. I hope that in, you know, whatever many years, hopefully not 20, um, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully a little bit less than that, um, if I invest correctly, um, that uh, somebody will interview me and I can tell them about how wonderful the years have been. Because um, this is just, at, like you, I feel like everything that I have in my life that I love is because of education. Even, you know, we're talking about painting. I didn't just get painting skill beamed into my head from birth. You know, you had to learn to learn how to do anything. And that's all, that's what education is, is learning, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Maybe one of these days you can talk to somebody and you can, when they interview, you can tell them how it used to be in the good old days, just like I've been telling you today. (laughs) In the the days before internet. (laughs) <laughs> right. Uh, awesome. Well, if if people want to catch up with you, remind us again what your um, websites and, and socials are. Sure. Social media these days, I'm mainly, I'm most active on LinkedIn, I guess. Um, I used to be more active on Twitter slash X, but now that's become more of a dumpster fire than a social <laughs> network. I'm not as active. Um, I'm trying to get more active on threads. Hmm. So we'll see how that goes. And then my websites are andrewcarriega.com, and that's um, a blog focused on the craft of writing. Just getting started on that. And then um, a blog about rock and roll music it's called rockandrollonly.wordpress.com. That's rock in roll only. I love it. I love it. I can't <laughs> wait to. I can't wait to follow. Uh, all of these things and follow you in your retirement. I hope it's long and and healthy and happy. Well, thank uh, you. Listeners, you know, you can always find me on LinkedIn, just like Andrew. I am not spending quite as much time on X, but I am still there at Jamie Hunt, IMC, J-A-I-M-E-H-U-N-T-I-M-C. Um, my website's thehigheredcmo.com. Um, and I am always eager to talk to people. People reach out to me all the time. Don't be shy. I'm, I'm happy to chat um, and share 
share anything. If there's something from me that you think would benefit you, I'm happy to share. So don't ask me for painting lessons because that's that's not <laughs> going to be good for you or your paintbrushes. Um, but in the meantime, let's go bust some silos. Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO is part of the Enrollify Podcast Network. If you like this podcast, chances are you'll like other Enrollify shows too. Our podcast network is growing by the month. And we've got a plethora of marketing, enrollment, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks, all designed to empower you to be a better higher ed professional. Our shows help higher ed marketers and admissions professionals find their next big idea and feature a selection of the industry best as your host. Learn from Mallory Wilsey, Seth O'Dell, Jenny Lee Fowler, Eddie Francis, and so many other of your favorite leaders in higher ed. Enrollify is made possible by Element 451, the leading AI-powered all-in-one student engagement platform, helping institutions create meaningful, personalized, and engaging interactions with students. Learn more at element451.com.